0: This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Bev Jones, and this is Just About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today we're talking with Ira Chaliff, an author, thinker, executive coach, and trainer. He specializes in the dynamics between leaders and followers in the workplace and how workers can stand up to their bosses. His first major book was The Courageous Follower Standing Up to and For Our Leaders. And his most recent book is Intelligent Disobedience Doing Right When What You're Told to Do Is Wrong. I know you, and I've known you for decades. I've had the pleasure even of working with you, and I know you as an executive coach and a, a leadership consultant, but in the world of leadership, you're, you're much more than that. I'm, I'm sort of awed because you're known around the world as a founder of, the, of a movement, the Courageous Followership Movement. Your your classic book, The Courageous Follower, is is part of the curriculum in all kinds of venues, from police academies to Harvard's Kennedy School. Can you um, can you give us a quick definition of what it means to be a courageous follower?
2: Well, first I uh, thanks so much for recognizing the uh, footprint, if you will, of these concepts. I'm very grateful that they've been adopted. So widely. Uh, Essentially, historically, particularly in American culture, the term follower has been somewhat of a pejorative. It's been viewed as uh, someone who's rather weak. I reject that. I think that that is typing people as a personality. I step back and I look at people in their roles people often play both a leader role and a follower role at the same time. This is particularly true of middle management. Obviously, they have to lead and obviously, they have to follow. My question is, when you're in the follower role, how do you do that with strength, with integrity, even with wisdom? And that is what courageous followership is about.
1: So it's often about not just saying yes, but standing up to the boss when the boss is wrong. And I, I, I think you really take the whole concept a lot further in, in, with your more recent book, Intelligent Disobedience, that, that it builds on the concept and helps us all think about when you have to say no if you're not the boss, right?
2: Well, you're absolutely right. Let me step back, though, and say that the ability to say no effectively and meaningfully is based on the foundation of the ability to say yes. In other words, when we're in the follower role, we do need to follow. We may prefer to do something different than our leader is doing, but if what they are doing has a reasonable chance, for success and doesn't violate any core values our job is to follow and follow creatively and energetically and help them succeed from that platform when we see them doing something that is not uh, setting the group up for success that's when we need to speak up and you're right that intelligent disobedience not random (laughs) disobedience or reactive disobedience is part of that skill set.
1: It's not always easy to tell when it's okay to disobey, but in, in your book you talked about a class where one of your students had the perfect example sitting under the table there.
2: I know. That was, that was quite a moment for me. I was working with a group of mid-level managers. We were discussing the question of authority, and how most of the time it makes sense to comply with what you're being asked to do by an authority figure, but sometimes it doesn't if the authority has wrong information, and the outcome would be dangerous. And a woman in the class said that she had an example under the table, which piqued my interest. She had a dog under the table, and she explained that the dog was being trained to be a guide dog for a blind person. And that for the first 18 months of its life, it uh, was being socialized and learned how to obey all the commands it would need to know. And then it needed to go to a higher level trainer to teach it intelligent disobedience. I had never heard that term before. And I asked her to explain it, and she said, well, think about it. If the dog receives a command to go forward and there's a car coming around the corner, it must not obey or it will get the team of the dog and the human killed. And if it can't learn to differentiate between orders to obey and orders to resist, it cannot be a guide dog. And that's what began my journey for my latest book, Intelligent Disobedience.
1: Well, your journey has been a pretty interesting one for observing um, what leadership is like in particularly the public sector. I know you've worked with all kinds of groups, but one of the most interesting is is the opportunity you've had to see so many members of Congress and their teams. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became an expert in this field and what some of the the special challenges are uh, with Congress?
2: Well, I had the good fortune when I came to Washington, D.C., when I was doing the search to see how my interests and talents could best match uh, a group's needs, to find a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that worked with members of Congress to help them serve their constituents better. In other words, they're elected. Now what? Um, Often they didn't have managerial experience, nor did their chiefs of staff who tended to be hired for their political acumen. So this small group, which had been founded several years earlier, provided training and research um, and sometimes uh, consulting and facilitation to individual congressional offices to help them organize their resources better in uh, the service of their constituents. I got an internship with that group. I liked what it was doing very much, and I worked my way up to executive director and actually then became a chairman of the board, and I'm chair emeritus now. The group continues to flourish. It's almost 40 years later. And in this highly polarized political environment, it is one of the few groups that are trusted on both sides of the aisle because it's does not have a political agenda. Its agenda is to help members of Congress to serve their constituents better. And yes, you're absolutely right, Bev. It's given me a chance to be a fly on the wall as I facilitated over 100 congressional retreats to see how do they think about the very complex problems. And particularly from my point of view, how do the staff help bring out the best in that member, and frankly, help contain some of that member's uh, weaknesses or aspects of their style that will not be productive. That's a very interesting dynamic, obviously, given the work that I have chosen to do.
1: I'm interested in how one office culture differs so much from another office culture when it comes to sort of open debate and examination of the issues. In, in, In your book, you, you talked about a, um, a military captain who trained a lieutenant to say, that's BS, sir, whatever he thought the orders were appropriate. Um, what was that exercise all about? And do you ever see that in congressional offices say something the same as that?
2: Hmm. Well, that was, a, again, a, a, a very interesting story that was told to me by a, a former Army officer and it was, you know, the military often thought of as a command and control culture. That was its historical nature. It has actually changed radically. Now the, um, the the overarching philosophy is what's called command intention, that the senior command explains or issues the intention of what it needs the military force to do, and then it's very much up to the people on the ground to figure out uh, how to do it and what can be done and what shouldn't be done. So it's a great devolution of responsibility to those who we traditionally think of in the follower role. That does translate in some offices uh, as well better than in others. You can have a member who is very uh, domineering, and it can be difficult for staff to be fully candid, and I think, frankly, that puts the member at risk. Other members, um, they are not full of themselves. They understand that they are surrounding themselves with people who are being paid to study and understand the issues in more depth than they themselves possibly can, and that they really have to listen to the counsel that is being given to them. Ultimately, it's their decision which advice to take and which not to take, but that is what we need from our leaders at every level, from you know even down to a small business um, in 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 any town in America. The people at the cash register, the people at the service, you know, the service interface with the customer, they see what is needed, and if their perspective is valued and they feel comfortable. Uh, critiquing, if you will, the existing practices, that business is going to do better.
1: So if you were to have a client who's running a business and who um, grew up in a a command and control environment but is convinced that the best thing to do is, is to have people who are able and willing to point out problems and suggest better strategies but didn't know how to go about it. How, how would you suggest somebody get started to create a, a, a culture which is more supportive of people speaking up when it's for the greater good of the organization?
2: Yeah, that's very interesting, Deb, because to some degree it depends where they're starting from. Uh, they may have unwittingly, frankly, traumatized their people who have learned not to speak up, and then they're going to need some help in convincing them that it really is okay to speak up. And frankly, you know, if they're in that situation, they might well benefit from the services of a business coach or or a leadership coach because they have to really learn to hear themselves. How do they... Um, present themselves in meetings, do they really invite inquiry and dialogue or are they sending signals that show that they may say they want it but they don't really mean it. So it, 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 there's not a pat formula. If you were starting with a blank slate you might have a conversation that went something like this. Um, I um, you know I drive a car you drive a car we all know that a car has blind spots and we always have to check our blind spots before we change lanes or we're going to get an accident we know as human beings we're fallible I have blind spots and by definition I can't see what's in them I count as you my team to be my mirror and to help me look over my shoulder to tell me what's in my blind spot I need you to be able to be candid with me. Sometimes I might not like what you're saying. Please forgive me if I you know, initially react with displeasure. I, I need you to know that I really do fundamentally value you warning me. Now, what I do with that information, of course, I'm going to need some trust from you that I've really listened to it and I've made some choices, but I count on you to be candid with me.
0: We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University is having an impact today while providing innovative education for tomorrow's leaders. The Master's Program in Public Administration and Environmental Studies Lead students to greatness in nonprofit, environmental, public sector, and government settings. Learn to lead at the Voinovich School. We're now accepting applications. Information is available at ohio.edu backslash school.
1: Ira, I'm sort of fascinated by the course of your career and, and as the as the leader of a, a movement of, of people who are looking at these issues. I know you've traveled a good bit, I think you were in Latin America recently and even in China. So I, I, I got I have two questions coming out of that. One is, do you see that cultural differences make a huge difference in how people Think about intelligent disobedience, but also, what's it been like in your life? Has this travel and looking at um, leadership from so many different directions has that changed you? Do you want to start with one of those questions?
2: Sure. Let me start with the cultural differences. You know, research tells us that different societies have different levels of uh, what's called uh, power uh, differentiation. In other words, um, in some societies, the power distance is smaller and some it's greater. So typically, for example, Asian countries are put in the uh, greater power distance. So theoretically, it it is easier in our culture to speak truth to power than in many Asian cultures. In practice, I haven't found that people uh, find it so easy in our culture to speak truth to power either. So I do find that it takes some preparation. And, you know, we have some very, very uh, concrete examples of preparation that has been productive, such as in the airline industry where crews are trained to speak up assertively if the captain is not seeing a danger, and that has improved airline safety. We're seeing a similar uh, strategy being employed in hospital surgery rooms to reduce uh, hospital errors uh, by surgeons. So we know that training is needed even in a relatively low-power culture. I think in high-power cultures perhaps it's it's even more so. Uh, but I have seen in those cultures uh, adoption of these concepts, so I'm I'm encouraged by it.
1: You came to Washington and learned a lot about leadership from watching members of Congress and then watching people in different organizations. And at the same time, you were growing as a leader yourself because you had an idea and you were taking it out and you were teaching other people. And so without being an organizational leader, you've been the leader of a, a movement. I'm, I'm wondering how you have succeeded in leading people uh, to believe in these concepts what have, were you consciously growing as a leader based on what you were seeing, or, or, or did you simply um, function as a, as a writer and a speaker and, and it just grew up organically? How, how did you grow as a leader as you were studying leadership?
2: Well, those are very interesting questions, of course. Um, I didn't arrive in Washington you know, as a blank slate. I had been involved in leader roles and follower roles in various non-profit organizations and cultures, and I had made my fair share of the errors. Uh, so partly when I write about uh, these issues, I'm also writing from my own subjective reality about uh, ways in which I have created environments in which people have not necessarily been comfortable being candid with me, and I've had to really, uh, you know, do some uh, reflection on how do I do that differently, and I've had to practice that, so, you know, I certainly don't um, kind of hold myself up in some sort of a above-this-all fray, when I, um, and and I, I guess it's helpful to understand that, in a sense, this is a lifelong quest, because I grew up in a family where my maternal grandmother lost her entire family in the Holocaust. And from a very early age, I had this burning question, why do people let leaders go so off the rails, become so destructive, follow them? Uh, is there anything that can be done to change this? So when uh, I, after a few years in Washington, and as you say, I got uh, some new uh, vantage points on how does power work in a political environment. I was reading about the My Lai Massacre mm-hmm. and how, um, you know, a couple of hundred soldiers uh, followed uh, the, uh, you know, uh, terrible orders and then participated in the cover-up. And the author said that something seems to happen when people are in the follow role that they, Displace their moral accountability onto uh, the leader, and right then and there, I wrote in the margin of the book, "It sounds like a different way of following is needed." And that began my journey. And actually, you're absolutely right. I have not always been the most courageous follower to speak up when I saw something wrong. Now, as I became a, uh, a you know a writer and an opinion leader in this field. I have found myself in the various organizations, in you know, which I am part of uh, as a board member uh, or in another capacity, um, realizing that I have to live what I'm teaching. I have to be willing to speak up um, early and then effectively. And effectively does not necessarily mean stridently. I've really had to learn. Uh, the different voices one can use to bring to the group or the leader's attention issues that they should be considering and do it in a way that didn't have a tone of moral judgment, mm-hmm. that you know, you're wrong, I'm right, but that as, in terms of our mission and our values, uh, we need to examine what we're doing here. And I've, I've grown, and I'm very, uh, you know, I'm very delighted that I've been able to grow and I I look forward to continue growing.
1: The kind of growth that you're talking about seems to offer hope, I think in a in a time when a lot of people are wondering how can we help step into leadership in our country? How can we play a role to impact the value structure of our company when we're just ordinary people and we're not in office and, and we don't have a lot of power. It, it, it sounds like the kinds of things you're talking about can be done at a family level, in a schoolroom level. Can, can this start with how you raise your kids and how you manage your own family?
2: Yes, absolutely. And in fact, my uh more recent book on intelligent disobedience um, to my great surprise actually found me going right down to the uh family level and the primary school level because that's where the patterns are p- are uh placed in terms of authority and how we uh, behave in the face of authority. And in fact, I was as, as you mentioned Uh, I was in Hong Kong just last month. I had been invited uh, to be a keynote speaker at a group of educators, about 500 educators from English-speaking schools throughout uh, Asia uh, who were dealing with the subject of child safety. And they recognized that the material I was talking about uh, on how you could even at a very young age Help children to understand the difference between orders that they need to obey and follow and those that they don't Um, because we know that uh, while we used to be uh, concerned about stranger danger we now know that abuse occurs from authority figures that they're supposed to be able to trust it's a tough nut to crack on how do you help a child differentiate but it can be done and I developed a video to help parents um, to teach children that at a very young age. Um, it's called Blink, Think, Choice, Voice. And it's kind of like stop, drop, and roll. And it walks them through the four steps they can take uh, to make good decisions, even at a very young age. Where, where uh,
1: is that available, Ira?
2: Uh, yes, it's, it's it's available on YouTube Go if you go to BlinkThinkChoiceVoice.com. And it's just a three-minute video, and it gives parents a template for how to talk to their children about this. And there are links to articles on how to uh, develop role plays with your child. I was delighted to find that uh, when I was in Hong Kong that one of the educators there had already tested this method out with 180 10 and 11-year-olds and found that it worked very effectively. So uh, I, I, I'm excited about that and I'm looking forward this year to building on that.
1: That sounds fabulous. And I think the same thing might work with grown-ups. I mean, it's so simple. If you have a um, a group of colleagues, if you have a sort of a self-guided team or something like that, would A a, a comparable um, routine help help people practice speaking up.
2: You're absolutely right. Uh, What happens is if you get an order that kind that shocks you, you you know it just feels that that feels so wrong. You do have a physiological, let's call it brain freeze, and blinking actually helps you kind of reset your brain and you know take a deep breath and think. You know, they're the authority figure, but we have this set of values, policies, laws, etc. Is this a right or a wrong order? And then make your choice, am I going to implement the order, am I going to question the order, am I going to recommend an alternative, and then use your voice to effectively convey that. So yes, it can work actually at any stage of development.
1: So if somebody today goes to work and gets an order that just doesn't seem right, does speaking up mean they have to put their job in jeopardy? Or can you learn how to be more adept, more effective at challenging an order without jeopardizing your career? Is that a skill set you can learn?
2: Yes, absolutely. Intelligent disobedience, I talk about it in terms of voice there are many different voices and choices in language on how to question something. And there's almost a, an escalating scale, if you will. Usually a simple question uh, will get the authority figure to reconsider. And if not, you know there are other uh, sort of ways of elevating the question or the concern. And in The Courageous Follower, I actually give uh, samples of dialogue you could use, again, sort of from the gentlest to the most firm, uh, depending on the severity of what you're being asked to do and its uh, potential consequences.
1: So one of the things that we can do as team leaders or family leaders is encourage an environment in which people ask questions, not critical, challenging questions necessarily that'll put people in the defensive, but just the habit of before you take steps in an important situation or even a routine situation. You say, let's talk it through and make sure we thought about all the things that could matter here. And encouraging a culture in which people routinely kind of question where we are, that's one of the ways that you can prepare people to be um, better followers and better leaders. Would you agree with that?
2: Yes. The... um You you know, one has to be mindful that there's a time and a place for everything. If it's an emergency, um, you really, uh, the right thing to do is to act quickly and not get into prolonged uh, questioning that can come afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's somewhat contextual. But, you know, just for example, just to bring it down very simply, let's say you're around the family table and your kids are about, you're about to send your kids off to summer camp and they've never been to summer camp, and you're worried, you know, are they going to um, get in, in, they're in the hands of people you don't know. And so you could do a simple thing like, like say, um, you know, if, if the counselors say, um, you know, to come out of the water, because sometimes over, should you obey? Yes, of course. Um, if there's a light, if there's lightning, and the counselors say to start your, you know, to get in the water, should you obey? Well, no, because we know that when there's lightning, that's not safe. You've already learned that because we've been on the soccer field when there's lightning storms and we end the game. So, you know, you can give them very concrete examples that are real in their lives um, on the kinds of things they, they have the right to say no to and the things where they should say yes to. And that builds a certain... Um, understanding that they have
1: choice in a situation. So scenario um, exploration is a way to to build the capability of of asking questions and hesitating when it's really important.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: I think one of the things that is so compelling about your book, um, Ira, is is that um, you... Make it so clear why intelligent disobedience really matters. One of the most compelling examples you talked about happened at at nine eleven. Do you just want to describe that um, example as as a as a way to show to demonstrate the importance of of knowing when to step out away from the orders?
2: Yes, uh, in that particular case, uh, intelligently disobeying saved 2,900 lives. Uh, the safety officer in the second tower uh, had understood that the towers were vulnerable and he was not able to uh, convince the or the, the company to move but in, he did extract uh, from the executives an agreement to conduct safety drills once a month and did so. And then uh, when the uh, first tower was hit, um, and the order came uh, for everyone to remain at their desks that, uh, you know, there was no reason to leave. He understood that that was not a correct order, and he immediately contravened it and got all of his 2,900 people to evacuate, saving their lives. Two were unaccounted for. He went back in to try to locate them, and the building, the second tower, came down, and he died with those other two. Quite an heroic act, Um, but a clear example. That's a very dramatic example. I think it's also useful for us to think about very simple
1: examples.
2: You know, for example, let's say um, your son is a... uh, you know, fresh out of high school, and he's a clerk in a grocery store, and, you know, the eggs are marked for expiration. And he, the, the eggs are about to uh, expire, and he's told by a supervisor, put them in a different box with a new expiration date. That's a terrible problem for a young person to face. And, you know, that would be an example where they have to know at least to go and consult with someone else, their parent, you know, another Mm -hmm. supervisor. This doesn't feel right. Uh, And, yes, they may lose their job, but it's better that they learn the lesson to do the ethical thing than to um, comply and then have that question of, you know, did we sell um, bad eggs that might uh, cause someone to get sick. Very, very simple. It can happen in any industry. And therefore, every business, every industry, I think would benefit from having conversations about, you know, what kinds of situations could arise in our business that we may need to question rather than just obey.
1: Ira, I think you're so right. Having conversations uh, about um the scenarios that could have an impact on our organizations, on our family, it, it makes so much sense. Your book is Intelligent Disobedience, Doing Right When What You're Told to Do is Wrong. And it's a, it's a book full of examples. It's a wonderful, readable, practical, and I think very important book. Uh, where is it available?
2: Anywhere. You know, anywhere where you get books. Um, you know, by that I mean it may not be on the bookshelf in your local bookstore today. But um, any online service where you get books in any format, it's available. And if you go, and I hi- heartily support local bookstores, if you go in and ask them and it's not on the shelf, they'll order it for you.
1: Well, it's a it's an important book, Ira. Congratulations on its success. And thank you so much for joining me today.
2: My pleasure.
1: Today we've been talking with Ira Chaliff about the concept of courageous following in the workplace. And here's today's tip. A lot of leadership is about your values, the qualities and people you believe in. If you regularly ask yourself about what's most important in your life, you can always have a short, handy list of the things that matter most. And when you're faced with a decision, as a leader or as a follower, your list will always serve as a handy tool. You can ask yourself, would this action serve my list? And it's the same in a group. You can all develop a practice of asking Does this action serve our values? This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO.